I'm Brian Lowry, a professor of organizational behavior at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. And this is Leadership for Society, a series of conversations that focuses on the most pressing issues of today. This fall, we're talking about race and power. Are we all kind of complicit in this racist system because we're participating in it? It is clear that there's something amiss, very amiss about the way capitalism has continued to express itself and grow in this country. Because ultimately I'm like, and I don't mean this in a naive or annoying way, but I'm like ready to like burn it all down. Wow, is this really where we are? Business school students talking about burning down the system? To explore the fraught history of capitalism and how we got here, we talked with Mercer Baradaran, a law professor and associate dean for equity, diversity, and inclusion at UC Irvine. Mercer is also the author of How the Other Half Banks, Exclusion, Exploitation, and the Threat to Democracy, and The Color of Money, Black Banks and the Racial Wealth Gap. So welcome, it's great, great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, this is an honor. You pulled the bait and switch with this book. So it's about black banking, but um, reading through the book, um, there's a lot more than black banking. That seems to be a side part of the book. So can you tell us a little bit about um, how you got interested in this and how the book came about? Yeah, I wanted to use actually black banking to debunk this general theory and policy that you see in banking, um, which is that, you know, for the big banks, you know, JP Morgan, Bank of America, they're kind of tied in with the Fed and the monetary policy and all that stuff kind of works in a, in a very um, integrated form with the government. And then when it comes to, you know, racial equity or inequality in general, communities are always told, oh, well, you should rely on microcredit or community banking or, you know, credit unions. Like in other words, that this, the money creation mechanism is going to be, everyone's just going to put their deposits in a bank and that's going to multiply money. And, 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 and those who understand banking know that that's not how wealth is created. It's really, you know, through, you know, the money multiplier being an integrated whole, um, into the banking process and then, you know, getting those subsidies and guarantees from the Fed and Treasury. And I wanted to use black banks to actually just show the myth in general and, and really talk about banking. And it ends up becoming about the racial wealth gap, really. Mm -hmm. And you start actually further back than that, right? So you talk mm -hmm. about the roots of kind of American capitalism and slavery. The wealth creation from slavery, it's not just the labor. So it's not just that. Um, slaves are growing cotton and it's cheap to have cotton produced by slaves because you're not paying for wages. Um, it is also the ownership of humans was collateral, was capital that you can then use to grow that wealth. The caveat is that it wasn't just the Southern economy. It was the Northern economy and uh, the Liverpool, sort of the worldwide cotton trade used not just the labor that the slavery produced, but also the capital that slavery hmm. produced to sort of spin the wheels of this capitalist system to create cotton, to feed into the Liverpool merchants and the Northern industrialists, and to kind of create a currency based on the slaves themselves. During Reconstruction, there was this real fear that by the North and the Liverpool merchants that if the freedmen got land, which was always what was going to happen in the Freedmen's Bill, because what else was the point of having reconstruction. We've had like a treasonous Confederate 
Southerners, right? And so the options were like off with their heads or repartition the land. And when that was being discussed, the traders in the North, in the Liverpool sort of um, cotton importers started freaking out because in Haiti, when the freed slaves got land, they grew subsistence crops because that's what you do when you have land. You grow a part of your plot to feed your family and then you grow a little bit of cash crop. But if everyone stops growing the cash crop, supply goes down, demand goes up, prices go up. And the worldwide cotton markets did not want that to happen. And that's how the 40 acres promise was eradicated. And then instead they got a bank, right? The Freedmen's Bank. And I start with that story and, and talk about the subversion of the land grant being about the demands of capital. Mm -hmm. Well, when you brought up Haiti, it's interesting because I always thought of the biggest issue with Haiti was the fear of a revolt because they weren't actually freed, right? They, they freed right, themselves right. through violent revolt. And I assume that that was the mm -hmm. bigger right. kind of driver mm -hmm. response to, to that revolution. But it's interesting that you see that you're talking mm -hmm. about it in terms of the concern about the kind of crops that would be raised, right? Moving from, mm -hmm. I guess, sugar primarily in Haiti to now more subsistence crops. And they were worried about mm -hmm. that in the South. Oh, they were definitely worried about the violence as well. These are the worries of the Liverpool merchants, not the Southerners themselves. This becomes, uh -huh. what, what is what are the capitalists worried about? Of course, the Southerner, I mean, the threat of rebellion was ever present in slavery and post-slavery. And that's where, where you get the incredible violence post-Reconstruction. But during Reconstruction, in the moment where there was a chance to have land allocation and to have real power, this is where the North really needed this demand for, for low-priced cotton. Can you tell us a little bit about Reconstruction? I've used that term in other uh, conversations, mm -hmm. and I'm not sure that everyone is up to speed mm -hmm. about when we say Reconstruction, what we're referring to. Yeah, so Reconstruction is the Freedmen's Bill that is passed by Lincoln, you know, Sherman Grant, the Republicans, in sort of re- configuring the Southern economy um, post-Civil War. And, and really, honestly, anything good and worthwhile that has been said about Reconstruction was said by W.E.B. Du Bois in Black Reconstruction. He is the historian that really got what was happening. And what he says is, is really, um, it, it is a clash of capital and labor. And it really becomes about like the redomination of uh, black men and women through, um, you know, violence, through disenfranchisement. You know, you have the Civil War, the grant of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, which are equal protection, due process under the law, the right to vote. And those rights exist for about eight years. And black men are elected to Congress and representing um, the interests of the race. And, and there was this recognition by at least some Southerners that this is sort of the new um, thing. And, and there's this recession that happens as everyone's growing cotton the prices come down of course that's what happens if everyone's in this um you know debt market and and really kind of puts pressure and reconstruction gets sort of radically overthrown by the southern democrats um through violence through complete disenfranchisement through the overtaking of the courts and the lawyers and all the laws that they remade to reinforce um, that labor. So you couldn't be a vagrant, which meant you couldn't not be growing cotton. And if you were, you were sold into convict leasing and then you were, you know, consigned for the rest of your life, be in the steel um, sort of mines, your property wasn't protected where you couldn't get patents for your invention. All of those rights that were earned by the freedmen were slowly taken away. And um, all of that sort of was complete within 10 years. And after 10 years, then there's a rebirth of 
the Klan is post, way post slavery, way post reconstruction, the, the Jim Crow economy, all of that stuff is sort of just like this retrenched white supremacy. Right. So in that, in that period of time, white people in the country didn't have property, right? There was, there were like mm -hmm. a, a few um, landed white men who were very wealthy, but the vast majority of the population was not well off. There was no social mm -hmm. security. People were dying in poverty. Um, obviously, if you were a slave, that was a, a whole different situation, but still there was incredible poverty. So you move up and then and you get this explosion. So I'm now moving us forward in, in your story, mm -hmm. right? So you get mm -hmm. this real increase in a white middle class and more uh, economic opportunity. So can you tell us how that happened and how the, the role race played in those um, these more modern kind of events? I'll just skip to the New Deal, right? The New Deal, I mean, FDR, it, it wasn't like Wilson. He wasn't a white supremacist like Wilson, but to get the New Deal passed, he had to you know, um, give the Southern Democrats what they wanted. And he essentially ends up kind of cementing uh, racial segregation in housing in the law. What happens between 1934 and 1935 is that the entire banking sector, credit, mortgages, everything is completely radically changed. Um, so what FDR does during the New Deal is takes out the risk in all mortgage lending and all banking. So FDIC insurance is created at that moment. All deposits are insured. The FHA guarantees every mortgage loan as long as they are you know, a certain like loan-to-value ratio, 30-year fixed rate, capped on interest, and in an area that the FHA deems not super high risk. And how do they determine this? purely on race. So you, you have these HOLC map makers and you can actually look at these original maps. And if you look at any neighborhood that's redlined, essentially in the first sort of subsection, it'll say race of inhabitants. So it'll be like, you know, Mexican or subversive races um, and then black. And if it was black over a certain proportion or if it's too Mexican or whatever, then it would be redlined. You could not get a loan. You could not get a mortgage. And that ends up applying also to really high net worth black communities, even at the time that these were the elite in Atlanta, in Chicago, there are some landowning properties and even those are sort of eradicated because you can't, you don't have a market anymore. So what this does is it creates this white wealth building suburb. The black spaces are now um, tenant. It sucks the wealth out actually, because now you're paying more in rent than you would be paying in um, the suburbs. And it also links up all sorts of schools and taxes and parks and all of that stuff into the home ownership and really cements racial segregation. And then there's the law that kind of perpetuates it, right? So every community has a racial covenant. Every community has an HOA. You know, it's malpractice for real estate um, agents to build too close to the black community, right? There's FHA manuals to real estate agents saying you're too close, you have to build a wall or you have to um, make sure you segregate. And it really embeds property values with racism. I'm curious, have you looked at the property values now? Like how tightly um, correlated are they with those um, original shifts in property values as a function of the FHA support? Yeah, so the studies are still that Black properties in Black neighborhoods don't increase in value still. Um, what is a Black neighborhood? It's somewhere between 5 to 10% of homes turned to Black. Um, as far as are they still in the red lined areas? those have shifted a bit. So there's this resegregation phenomenon. So Ferguson, Missouri is an example where St. Louis was heavily segregated and all of the, the redlined areas were, you know, black inner city. And then as it, you know, gentrifies, um, the black community is pushed out because they hadn't been able to have the equity under the land. 
So this has happened in New York and Chicago, a few other places. But besides that, you can roughly track the complete history of, of the country and every zip code now lines back up with those 1934 maps. And you can look not just at wealth, but at economic mobility. You can look at school um, resources. You can track literally anything to zip code and it will be a stand-in for race to such an extent that credit cards and other sort of uh, credit scores can't use zip code because that's considered uh, discriminatory. Mm. And because it is, because we are so geographically segregated still. So where do Black banks start to come into this? So there's a reason why Black banks are created by Black communities themselves. Like you've got heavy Jim Crow segregation, white institutions refuse to lend, to take deposits, to do anything with um, Black customers, especially in the Jim Crow South, but also increasingly in the North. And so a lot of these institutions, most of them are created out of need because you know, you, you need a place to do all of it. It's not just black banks, it's burial societies and social clubs and schools and all this other stuff. Um, at one point though, the promise of closing the racial wealth gap or equality starts to be kind of imposed on black banks. And this is very much like an outside phenomenon. A lot of the black bankers themselves, a lot of the black leaders were sort of pushing toward um, policy and politics, except for um, people like Booker T. Washington and, and others who said, look, if we gain economic strength and economic power, that political power will come. And so what I do is I look at the Black banks and look at the money creating mechanism and whether you can create wealth either individually or for the community through a Black bank. Can you, as Black banks, the industry promises, control the Black dollar or keep it in a community? And what I show is, you know, their deposits suck money out of the banks because they're small and they're volatile and they're very risky. Um, but the, the equity, um, banks make money by your loans. So the bank assets are our liability. So a mortgage is a bank asset. That's how they make money. Mortgages on black homes were underwater almost as soon as they were issued because of these segregation economics. And then as far as like the money maker, Black banks could take deposits from Black communities and lend into Black communities, but that money quickly escaped because of the original status quo of white property ownership. After the New Deal, there's only five Black banks that are able to survive from 1934 until the 60s because it's impossible to get private capital or any capital for a mortgage if you're not part of this FHA program. And then during the civil rights movement, there's like a resurgence of Black banks, you know, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, like both push for Black banking for different reasons. Um, and then, you know, I, I track uh, sort of Nixon then coming in and co-opting the language of Black banking and Black business to reinforce segregation. So no integration, you can have your Black banks and just create that economy while maintaining segregation without any capital. And so that, that is a subversion. And, and the reason why that pivot is important is because we're still living it. Uh, opportunity zones, all of the bank policy, everything that we do as banking attorneys and law professors to promote equity is embedded in this Nixonian structure of small banks, community banks. The premise is always that for poor communities, the way that they're going to gain wealth is to create their own banking institutions. And that, that was the original myth I tried to debunk because it's just, it's, it's not true. We've been duped because in, in the, it's, you know, you get support from all quarters for this sort of community um, 
empowerment because at the time segregation didn't allow you to participate in the full economy, right? The broader economy, if you were black. So this was what was left to you. And are you, so basically you're saying that that was always a, a dead end. Is that right? Yes. Um, it's an appealing narrative. It's just like community banking myth and that precedes Nixon. That is like a very Jeffersonian tradition. We're still living in this myth that these small community banks and credit unions, like that's the answer to inequality where all banking is national, all banking is federal. The Fed can create trillions of dollars overnight and you're telling these communities to like, you know, put their money together to make like these tiny loans. That, that, that's not gonna work. So you're basically you're saying the white middle class was created by the government through all these mm -hmm. loan guarantees that produced uh, an economy that the um, black folks were shut out of and they were asked to do it on their own. Is that fair? Yes. Okay, so yes. here's, here's okay. <laughs> so here's a question. I'm gonna assert, and you can you can challenge me on this. There's been some progress, right? Like the progress that's been made by the black community. What do you attribute that to? Of course, there's progress. The civil rights laws were taking serious the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. There's less like overt racism. There hasn't been progress on the racial wealth gap. Home ownership rates, black versus white, are as dramatic now as they were in the 1880s. The wealth gap has barely budged. So if you're looking at means, if you're looking at medians, those numbers haven't budged. So it's easy to find like the numbers like, oh, like Oprah and LeBron James, and there's certainly successful people, but numbers work through the mean. And white poverty is also a problem. I mean, inequality is a massive problem. So I think we may get to a point where it's not specifically race-based, right? Um, but because race and class have been so intertwined, um, it, it still is very much the case that certain communities are going to be disinvested. And, and that's increasingly white communities are also in that boat, but it's not because they're white. It is, it is just a phenomenon. Work with me for a second, because you talked <laughs> about the um, Civil Rights Act, you talked about the Voting Rights Act, but those <laughs> things don't end up having a huge consequence on the wealth gap, as you pointed out. And I'm curious about that disjunction, that separation, because most of the time in the book, you're talking about how these things work hand in glove. At one point, you seem to suggest that um, black capitalism was a way to drain the power from like the black power movement or the the, mm -hmm. the demands that were being made. And, and you seem to suggest that was a, um, a way to um, push back against the progress that was being made. Mm -hmm. How would you connect what's happening now to what you've learned in your, in your studies? So here's the thing, if you're JP Morgan, or if you're a big institutional power, if you're a monopoly, you want to maintain power. No one's gonna just give that up, right? It doesn't have to be race-based power. So you would much rather, I think, deal with racism than give up your power. So that's what it takes, then maybe we get there. Before the New Deal, Italians and Irish people were not white and they were also segregated. And the New Deal sort of brought them into the American system. So I, I do think whiteness is expanding, but there's still power in whiteness. And I think before it encompasses the entire black community, because it has been set as anti-blackness, it will take in some other groups. And so I think one is that whiteness will expand. And the other is that the a lot of the companies and some of the powerful sort of groups and institutions will um, diversify and give voice to Black Lives Matter before 
the structures of power will shift. The hopeful thing though, is that it's a moment of adaptation. I do think that this is another pivot point. There's the reconstruction moment, the civil rights movement, and, and, and we're at another one. It's not just Black Lives Matter, it is Black Lives Matter, but it's also, you know, the Trump phenomenon and the radical racism. Like when I was finishing this book, I was writing an ending that was, okay, now that we're in a colorblind America, how does racism present itself now that it can't be out loud? And, and I had to revise that last bit because it actually has been out loud again. Um, there is this real backlash to uh, you know, Obama and Black progress. But I think that that has actually pushed the conversation further. The incentives are there for an evolution of that hierarchy as opposed to a complete eradication. I find it amazing given that I know a bit of this history that the um, ideas have been as compelling as they are. The idea of like pulling yourself up by your bootstrap of mm -hmm. capitalism and free markets, given the history of wealth generation in this country just clearly does not track that, that's one. And mm -hmm. two, that we don't behave in a way consistent with the meritocracy in the terms of the way we raise our kids and the idea of, of looking mm -hmm. for giving them um, advantages mm -hmm. clearly over others. So mm -hmm. that the idea that that psychology persists um, mm -hmm. is really interesting to me. But even though I'm a psychologist, I tend to think that what you should change is not the psychology, but the mm -hmm. policies, right? Mm -hmm. So that you mm -hmm. should start mm -hmm. with that, what's on the ground and then assume that will affect the psychology. And given what you study, like what should we change on the ground? What's possible? Like what, 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 what yeah. could happen that could really change the course of um, this country's history? You either integrate, and this is an old word, but you, you know, um, every kid gets the same resources as every other kid. There isn't this neighborhood. And I agree with you. I think um, it is all about like uh, within one generation, I think you can completely change a mindset of, of, of people. And I think what it takes is, you know, that proximity and, and not kind of breaking up race and class the way we do such that there's such a fear of sort of this, the bad neighborhoods and the bad schools. And, and that's how, uh, you know, the privilege reinforces itself is in that separation is in the, you know, some, maybe it's not even in the suburbs anymore, but it certainly is people with privileges shield their kids from the drop to the bottom. And I think that's part of the problem is that the drop is so high. This applies to any race group, but especially for black communities. It's either the difference of getting, going to a school that has resources and parks and, and sports clubs versus being in an over-policed neighborhood with the trauma of violence, those things can be easily disrupted through policy. Uh, again, going back to the FHA, the New Deal, the, the silver lining of that is it took not very much time. It took, you know, 10 years to create an entire suburb, an entire economy where, you know, in 1933, you're paying, you know, $50 in rent in a tenement in Manhattan. And in 1950, you know, the, the, those same people. It's not like they gave loans to the middle class. They created a middle class by giving them loans. And so, the, you know, you're Italian, you're Irish, and you're tenement housing segregated in one decade. And the next decade, you're, you know, in the white suburb, your kids are going to school, you have the bowling alleys and the great American dream. And it's your home is building in equity. You've got the GI Bill. You have all of the sort of you know, the social capital that is being built up in those areas. And in the reverse, all of that stuff is being taken out of the black spaces. And so that needs to be disrupted. So it's either 
you eliminate those disparities that are race-based. So integration, which was what, you know, one group of the civil rights movement was saying, the other is capital. So you create not a gap, right, between the black spaces and the, and the others, and that's reparations. And I think one or the other, those are the two policy choices. And- I think there's only one. Okay. Here's, here's what I'm, I'm gonna, okay. so tell me, I could be wrong, but tell me, tell me why you think I'm, I'm wrong here. It's hard to imagine integration functioning if people have this perception of um, African-Americans being scary, mm -hmm. crime prone, not, not, not respecting what property, whatever the, these stereotypes are, but those stereotypes are born of lack of resources. And I wonder if you think this is true. When I read your book, it sounds like to get to successful integration, you need reparations. Yes. Yeah. And so I, when I say integrations, I don't mean it like without capital. Either way, it's got to take capital. It has to be money. And so we could put the money into housing grants like the Homestead Act, like the FHA. It does. You can call it reparations. You don't have to. But that's one way to do it is to do the same thing, the same subsidies, the same capital creation for black communities, that brings us up to equal, right? And so uh -huh. does reparations. It's just to get to the, to the same place where white Americans have been. And that, that's where I think even looking at the outcome of the racial wealth gap to eliminate it, what does that take? And, and forget any of the other programs, just, just focus on capital and you can get everything else fixed. The version of capitalism we have in this country, can it exist without the other, without someone who is not a part of it. Is it possible to have a fully integrated capitalist system in this country? Let, let me say this. I mean, the debate between, you know, capitalism or not capital, capitalism versus socialism, we don't have a capitalist economy. We have a state managed credit slash debt slash housing system. Everything is government either guaranteed or just produced. All of the money comes from the Fed. It gets routed to the banks. The debts are guaranteed by the treasury. The deposits are guaranteed by the treasury. It's all state managed. Capitalism is an interesting theory and we can debate what that works. But, it, but, but yes, your question to can we have American capitalism, whatever that is, um, without the other, um, we haven't had it yet. That doesn't mean that we can't have it. I think, um, you know, the W. Du Bois, that's why I end with him, he says the only problem with American democracy is that it hasn't been tried. And, and I think that's the point is actually, it is now a threat to democracy. The inequality is not just race-based. The majority of Americans are suffering. The market keeps ticking up, but only 20% of Americans are in the stock market. 10% of Americans own 80 to 90% of all the assets. And so we do have a majority of voters who ideally in a democracy could have it differently, could do massive change. And that, you know, again, going to the New Deal, that is what happened. The New Deal was pretty radical, but the threat that FDR was facing was um, socialism, was, you know, uh, uh, an, an external threat, an internal threat. Like he was trying to save the economy from this, existential thing and 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 we may be i mean really like the status quo isn't working and so we 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 could do another new deal and this time really include people and and the new deal worked for the people for whom it was designed to work it worked it cut inequality dramatically 
um, from the robber baron era until the 70s. Uh, so, you know, I, I do want to leave some hope on the table because what else can we do, you know? <laughs> I hear you. So yeah. I'm at a business school. So and many right, of my right. listeners are at a business school. What would you, so uh, staying with hope, what would you tell them? Like they're mm -hmm. going to be future leaders of organizations. They're starting mm -hmm. organizations. They'll, you know, be managing many, many people. Mm -hmm. What would you tell them to do how, if they care about these issues? Oh gosh, I mean, unless you understand the facts of how the racial wealth gap occurred, how racial inequality happened, you're gonna come up with another story. And usually that story is racist. Some people don't work as hard as others and maybe it's a biological thing. And you see these theories regurgitated and there's no scientific basis to them, but get educated. There's so much history that can be you know, at least evaluated by each company. Mm -hmm. And what would you tell the average white person, right? So when we talk about closing the gap, on one hand, you can say, look, we're not talking about taking anything away from people who are doing fine. We're talking about lifting people who've been systematically mm -hmm. shut out of the economy. Mm -hmm. But let's be honest, it's not going to mm -hmm. feel that way, right? And this yeah. has been the rhetoric that's been around for a long time, like anti-handouts, welfare, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. my hard-earned tax dollars paying for someone else. Um, mm -hmm. what would you yeah. tell the, uh, the average white person who sees it that way? Yeah. So I would say this is not the reason to do this, but having these ra the racial wealth gap is a drag on the economy. Um, the new deal, the public works programs, the investment in getting people out of poverty actually boosted the actual economy. So even if you care about just the bottom line, this is good to, to, to eliminate the racial wealth gap, to eliminate the, just like the America's original sin, it's just healing. Like forget the justice owed to the black community. I mean, this is, it's still here with us. Like this, this, this myth of race that we created to justify this horrific system of slavery that we don't have anymore and that we have long denounced, but those myths just lingered and stayed and festered because we never really dealt with them. And I think a, a, a process of reparations, of truth and reconciliation, would be very healing for all of us. I mean, look at post-Nazi Germany um, and the way that they are so open about the horrors that happened. And I think Americans just don't, we just wanna forget about it and, and put it aside and, and kind of go with like, oh, individual colorblindness and whatever. And there, there were these horrific things and it's okay to say, this is a horrible thing. And, and let's just put it out there, deal with it and, and pay pay what's owed. All right, that, that, I, I, I'd buy that. I, I'm not the audience, but I guess I'd buy that. Well, I, I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. After talking with Professor Baradaran, I circled back with the students to see if they could see a path forward for capitalism. Part of me is hopeful that society will move positively past sort of remnants of racial animus and that we'll see some kind of wave of economic progress that helps people. I think automation and sort of the rapid parting of ways of sort of elite people in our society and everybody else, there's going to be a new way of defining haves and have-nots that will not be as racialized, but it will be very bad for the people who, you know, are not in the privileged class and it probably will still be pretty racialized because we're going to be stuck with some kind of skew that will look kind of like what we have now. 
it's hard for me to imagine that out of that collective struggle, there won't be some level of, of change. And I think there's a, a lot of potential for the way that capitalism is expressing itself right now in this country, um, or the way that people understand it to change. Talking with students after the conversation with Professor Baradaran, it struck me that they saw capitalism as a system we collectively create, a system that evolves, not a preordained truth handed down on stone tablets. This gives me hope. It suggests that it's possible for all of us to see and understand that we participate in the creation of capitalism more as a lived reality than an abstract idea, and that we are capable of creating a more inclusive and equitable economic system. You've been listening to Leadership for Society, Race and Power, the podcast series. This show is produced by Stanford Graduate School of Business, and our theme music is composed by Belief. For more episodes in this series, make sure to subscribe to the Leadership for Society podcast.